Welcome to Inspiring People and Places, where we interview national leaders in the architectural, engineering, and construction industry in an effort to educate, innovate, and inspire industry professionals to disrupt the status quo, improve their project teams, and steward public and private investments more effectively. I'm your host, BJ Kramer, President and CEO of MCFA. And today I'm happy to introduce part two of my conversation with Jill Jamison and Duke DeLuca. Hope you enjoy. So you you bring up MPDS, environmental reviews, and shovel-ready projects for for putting you know putting the money in the ground today, so to speak. Uh, what are your what are your reactions or or latest developments you're seeing in in reform towards being able to get projects uh, permitted and titled faster uh, through the through the variety of uh, IIJA type mechanisms for investments. I'll let Duke go. <laughs> yeah, you're probably at the most propitious time to be discussing this issue. I know the previous administration wanted to accelerate. It 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 came up with the concept of it designated a lead federal agency responsible to be responsive and harness, you know, and harvest and cajole the other federal agencies instead of making the project proposer have to do all that. Uh, that was beneficial. Not you know, I'm not sure how much acceleration occurred. Now you have an administration that is simultaneously devoted to a base that is environmental and is responded to the sins of the previous infrastructure age, uh, which we can talk about in a second. Uh, but uh, through through and and therefore address those issues through law and policy that we now are trying to wade our way through much more quickly than in the past. Many of these procedures were put in place because of sins that developed out of an era of single purpose large public infrastructure projects. And that era, I think, fortunately, is dead. You know, we're, we're all, everything is going to be multipurpose from now on, which is good because you'll develop all the ecosystem, address all the ecosystem requirements and needs that the humans have, the environment has, the, the uh, people that are going to live there for a while, the people that are visiting, whoever, the users, everybody's needs will have to be addressed um, in your project, whatever it is. That, that's helpful. The current administration has this base that wants to keep the current laws and policies in place as is because they've been burned in the past. And now you also have an administration that wants to get political credit for effects that we're seeing in the economy based on this huge amount of federal uh, incentivizing and financing. Uh, and they want it to be applied to the economy in real time and not someday where long after they've been defeated for reelection, you know, it has a good effect on the economy. That's good, but it's not nearly as good as being reelected to them. So they have an incentive to accelerate this, and they've they're they're wrestling now with CEQ and Mitch Landrew at the White House. They're all wrestling with how do we make this go faster, but without committing these sins of the past. We created huge economic, uh, economic, environmental, and in some cases human damages by focusing on single purpose projects and therefore evaluating only that purpose when we reviewed it. Uh, that's one of the reasons NEPA was invented right. was because we can't, we can't do that anymore. You know, it's clearly had a negative effect of created a political backlash. And uh, it's one of the reasons I believe that contributed to our slowing of our public infrastructure development from 1986 to 2021. You know, the end of the national highway program was in 86. It was because of this huge backlash and how complicated it became because these effects were quite damaging on you look at America's riverine systems and watersheds. I mean, that's a classic example, not the only example. Some of the federal highway uh, plans and things were hugely 
damaging to neighborhoods and, and societies, particularly ones that are traditionally have been treated in, in, unequally in American society. That's one of the reasons for environmental justice to be an extreme component of these federal programs in this round, because they don't want that sort of thing to happen again, where poor people get, get pushed out of the way and uh, don't benefit from the infrastructure that's being in place. So uh, it, it is tricky. I haven't seen anyone with the key or anyone cut the Gordian knot, right? Um, yet. Maybe Jill has seen some signs of progress, but I haven't seen it yet. Well, what, what I've seen is, again, industry and the government um, develop new models to deal with this reality, right? And so everything Duke just said has led to the... Um, the heyday of what we call the progressive model of contracting, right? So progressive P3 is now, if you go to any conferences, that's all you're going to hear is the progressive model. And basically that allows you to get your private partner in early to help you with all of this long lead items like, like permitting, cost estimating, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and in a hyperinflation environment or a high inflation environment, this is also very helpful to get the pricing right, to figure out value engineering as you go before the, so walking away from the hard bid on the construction, instead doing a, a bifurcated process where the first process or the first part of phase is the, preliminary services, pre-development agreement, whatever you want to call it. And the second phase, if you want to go forward, is done under a traditional P3 where they finalize designs, finance, and then they operate and maintain it for a long time. But this, um, as a result, exactly of what Duke is talking about, these the uncertainty around permitting, the long lead items, coupled with this sort of um, supply chain inflationary environment we have it led to new contracting models. And that's all we're seeing right now. We're seeing at the federal level, we're seeing at the, at the state and local level. It is, um, I'd love to see industry react in real time, um, but this is uh, occupying most of my days these days. There's, there's a recoiling against hard bid right now, and there's in favor of doing these progressive approaches to be able to accommodate these sorts of issues like permitting. There's only one thing I would mention is we, we were talking about policy innovations in, in uh, both the requirements in the proposals. Uh, uh, and we talked about some innovative contracting. You know, an example that Navy Facilities Command is using is the they're making an award based on the proposals. And then they're having a meeting to re-cost re, re estimate the, the award based on changes in labor prices. Now, so far, they've only applied that to labor, not to material supply chains. They could apply it to both if they wanted to, right? You could say, okay, what adjustments do we need to make? You propose, you sent this proposal in in January. We made the award in April. What's changed? What do we need to change? You know, and that's and then they negotiate that agreed final price. So the actual award amount is not final until that second, that next negotiation. Even though they've made an award, and now we negotiate the final price. And and the right? the, the the risk there is open book contracting. Right. Well, uh, you, you can do that is... without open book. Yeah, you can do that in closed book and just fix price. Right. So, so that's just a standard adjustment mechanism. So typically in a bid scenario, you have to hold your pricing for 90 to 180 days. Yep. If you go beyond that in the award process, there's an automatic adjustment for certain factors, whether it's PPI or so to Duke's point, um, an adjustment for, for labor is pretty normal. But to his point as well. 
what does that do from a budget planning perspective, <laughs> right? So, so you've awarded and all of a sudden it's like, we can't afford this anymore. And that is happening, right? And so I think that's where um, there, there's, there's some sensitivity around, do we go to market right now if we don't know that we can actually absorb these, these interest rate in, in increases or interest rate and inflation increases, or do we hold off until things stabilize knowing that they may never well stabilize? Or do we do do you have some kind of contingency fund being held at a yeah. at a macro level of the agency that allows them to say you know now we're now we're triaging and we're prioritizing the projects that really need to get done and we're going to allocate all of our contingency to A B and C and X Y and Z you're getting canceled until the next. POM cycle in this in this example. So that methodology works well when you have a program funded thing like dam safety, levy safety, whatever. Right. You have a program, you have a certain amount of money in it, you're going to use a, a certain amount of money per year that Congress has allocated. But when Congress specifies a project and puts a number on it, right. it becomes much harder. Then then you you have a choice. You have to go to Congress and say, we're going to apply a multiplier and we're going to ask for 1.25 times the amount that we think it needs today, because by the time you appropriate it, that's what it'll be. Right, uh, and there is some. There's talk. There's things going on like that with the agencies talking to Congress, and they're doing that with their own cost estimating. In many cases, they don't know how to cost estimate, given they can't predict the disruptions, whatever they might be. They're using a multiplier, which is the simplest, most you know, uh, primitive tool to adjust your cost estimates. Right, and, and who knows how close we'll get the multiplier? You know, depending on what market it's in and what time of the year it is. Point three could be the good multiplier. It could be a terrible one. You know, in July. But it might be perfectly good in December. Who knows? Might be good in San Francisco, but shitty in Miami. Right. So you know, we, no one has sorted this yet, and they're they're wrestling with it. The other thing I wanted to point out is the procedural changes aren't just in the proposal tendering and, and contracting side. It's actually in some of the rules of the game. So we have important parts of our infrastructure that are public utilities corporations, and they operate in all sets sorts of sets of government rules because we've allowed them to be essentially a regional monopoly. Right. Well. It's in the energy world, the way they get paid is by by addition, adding power generation capability. These rules were designed during the New Deal when we needed to electrify the country and we needed more generation. That's why the Hoover Dam you mentioned earlier was built to generate more power, right? Fortunately, it generated more than we needed for the cities at the time. So we had it to build air, make aircraft factories for World War II. So um, we... Uh, I, in, the, in the year two, in 2000, I would have said we probably need to change that to focus on making our distribution system and transmission system more resilient and change the incentives to the PUCs. Now, in the end, I would have been too soon because the fact that power generation is how they get paid is one reason we've transitioned so far off coal into natural gas once the shale gas revolution hit in 2006-07 in the U.S., when we, horizontal fracturing became economically uh, achievable, well, suddenly all this locked gas and oil was now available at a very cheap prices. Um, and so now we saw, you know, uh, in, in the political speech, there was this discussion of a war on coal, but a government policy against coal never was put into place. It never took effect. The Clean Power Plan never took effect in America. It was all market forces and public utilities replacing their expensive coal and polluting coal with natural gas projects that were cheaper. The supply was cheaper and uh, they were able to make more money. And they got their model of getting paid meant that they got paid even more because they were building power generation. 
Well, that transition's almost complete. So maybe now's the time to at least add resilience of the transmission and, and, and uh, distribution system. Uh, we just had an incident here in Moore County in, in uh, North Carolina of sabotage, yeah. right, of a distribution system, right? Uh, however ridiculous the causes of that might have been, it highlights a real vulnerability and, and fragility that we should address in our infrastructure. You know, not just restoring what we had, but making it more resilient as we started this conversation with, you know, about an hour ago. Yeah, and, and just uh, to your point, BJ, about contingencies and whatnot, it's all money, right? So, so contingency is the worst use of funds in the history of the world, right? It's just kind of taking money that could be used for good things and holding it as a reserve. Um, it's necessary, obviously. Insurance is also necessary. But it doesn't so, – so from the federal government perspective where you kind of have these programmatic things to Duke's point, that's okay. But if you are a water district in California or in, 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 in Colorado, the idea of just waiting for them to increase their prices is, is, is offensive, right? And it's like they want – so the public sector wants the private sector to be able to build in their own contingencies, and those contingencies should be able to absorb some of that shock. So we've got this push and shove going on. Again, because I'm so old, I remember working in in, in hyper-inflationary environments in Latin America. There are formulas that we use all the time. It's actually not that hard, but to Duke's point, people now, they just haven't dealt with it, right? If you're old like me, we've dealt with this before. It's like, oh, good, I get to brush off that old toolkit, right? Um, so so I, I think it's just a temporary sort of gulp, collective gulp of the industry trying to figure out how to deal with this. There's going to be pushing and shoving. There's going to be finger pointing. Um, but I think everyone's going to get through it. I think my biggest fear is that people are just going to start jacking up the price of their cost estimates by another 10, 15, 20 percent, because as American taxpayers, we need to get the best value for our money and allowing the public sector to be off the hook in terms of delivering in a timely and cost effective manner is, is worrisome to me. So we've got to hold them to account in terms of how the money is spent and the cost estimate, everything needs to be done in a, in a maybe a more sober manner than it has in the past. That, so go ahead, sir. Not the last word on contract management. In the, in the, at, I'll focus on the federal government level, but I'm sure we could talk about it at state and local as well. Uh, there are some enormous issues there. And Frank, even before these infrastructure laws, uh, fundings uh, have been put in place in 2021 and 2022, we saw many companies moving out of the federal government market because there was too much risk and they were getting out of it and they just didn't need to do it to, to make money. And I have, I am personally aware of very, some small and regional companies that in spite of this massive uh, blob of investment in infrastructure have decided that they're not going to increase their federal market participation because it's just not worth the trouble. And one of the reasons for this is this crazy way that we are now contracting where we really don't communicate right? We submit change orders. It takes months to get back. We submit uh, design reviews. It takes months to get back. And we're not, the government is not responsive in many cases, and it's not really communicative. Instead of picking up the phone and have a conversation on an REA or a change and the estimate associated with that change, everything's formal. Everything's documented. Uh, and it speaks to a lack of entrepreneurial spirit, certainly, and skill in the contracting workforce in the federal government, which is now ever more challenged than it's been for the last 50 years, right? Because of the volume of stuff that 
needs to go out and be in, in put in place. So uh, this this business of uh, rigidity, you know, just take it to the court of federal claims or just file, you know, file, you know, okay, that that's an expense for business, and they're going to get paid for it up front if they think they have to do it, right? It's going to increase it's increasing the bids or driving competitors out of the market, which means fewer competitors for the same jobs. Frankly, there's an issue right now associated with the Biden administration has put out an EO requiring all projects above a certain dollar amount. I forget the amount. I think it's 35 million. You must do a project labor agreement. Now, the government traditionally uses PLAs when they think labor is going to be short. We have the lowest unemployment rate in the last 50 years. So I get that PLAs probably have some utility here in certain parts of the country. But to blanket require them for every project above 35 million in every location around the country, frankly, there'll be some people that don't bid on it as a result of that. You get fewer bids, more expensive bids, and you're going to pay for that. If you're willing to pay for it, that's okay. You know, I don't have anything, you know, the government always requires Davis baking wages. It always right. requires certain things. But, you know, so the government is willing to pay some things to benefit labor, not just the owners of the, these constructors. If you're willing to pay for that as well, uh, that's the policy decision, a political decision that I don't have a, a, a voice on, you know, or a, a strong opinion about. But just realize it's going to cost you, right? It's not free. It will add to the cost of what you're trying to implement. And maybe you don't care. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's kind of ironic, isn't it? That <clears throat> a lot of the talk about the IIJA when it was coming out was it was going to create jobs. At a time when we've had such an amazing shortfall, workforce shortfall in construction, I was like, this is not the time. 1934 is not 1920 or, or 2020 or 2022, right? So the idea that we need to invest in infrastructure to generate jobs and good paying jobs is not a valid point, right? We need to invest in infrastructure because it's at the end of its useful life cycle. And we as a society need that infrastructure in order to, to, to survive and to thrive. <clears throat> we need to do it in the timeliest and most cost-effective manner possible, as opposed to just trying to create right. jobs. We have a shortage of workforce. <laughs> so I, I, I do think that to Duke's point, that's it's it's sort of a philosophical error that was that was woven into this entire thing. I get it. I mean, every project I do has PLAs. It has um, all kinds of, you know, Davis-Bacon, if there's federal funding involved, et cetera. And, and I have no issue with that. It does raise the price. But in the same sense, even with PLAs, even with Davis-Bacon, we can't find workers. Um, and so it's increasing the price more and more. So it's, it's just becoming very com complicated from a delivery perspective. And it's an issue that... There is money going to workforce development. We require it in every single contract that there are apprenticeship programs and those sorts of things. But that's a generational shift. And to Duke's point, I don't think we're ever getting back to where we were in the 1960s and 70s or wherever that was where we had a full workforce working in that. Nor do I think we need it because I think that the technology is going to um, have the opportunity to step in and fill those gaps. And that's going to become right. I mean, even if you wanted it, you're not going to get it because the baby boom generation is the biggest generation of all the generations in our country, you know, the, the one that followed Gen X that followed is much smaller, you know, Gen Y, the millennial, millennials are a little bit bigger, Gen Z is even smaller. So they're not coming in. And by the way, they're not participating at the same rate in skills, trades and crafts and equipment operation the way baby boomers did. So there's a reduction even more from even a smaller dem demographic pool. There's a smaller number participating in your field. So you're going to replace labor. 
you're going to use autonomous earth moving. You're going to do all sorts of, Jill had mentioned prior to the call, you know, modular construction, how that might speed both quality, uh, accuracy specs and, you know, uh, the production process, uh, and reduce labor, you know, involved. That's one way. Modular construction is certainly one of those things. And for, for mega projects, what has seen to work the best is an agile project management approach where you're building pieces of it and then replicating what you've done to complete the entire project. That works best to be on time and on budget because you continue to generate efficiencies throughout the project. When everything's bespoke, everything's tailor-made on this enormous campus, then you you literally have cost growth everywhere, right? And you can't contain it. So um, there's lots to be said for a modular approach for at least major components of a project, a campus, uh, et cetera. So, yeah, I mean, look at look at public schools. Um, you know, middle schools are middle schools. Uh, modularly, we can get those things up and running, and they can be energy positive. And you can get one contractor to do six to ten schools very quickly because the design does not need to be adapted. Instead of procuring each one individually and and trying to do bells and whistles, I mean, you can still. You can still bedazzle it the way you yeah. want to, but it's uh, underlying uh, sort of fundamentals are, are are the same. So yeah, there there definitely there's a sea change going on. In terms have of have you seen by? Um, there's a couple of threads I wanted to pull on. Uh, have you seen buy into that standardization, Jill? I have. Yeah, no, definitely. So um, maybe not because people want to see it, but it's a requirement. So I'm thinking. Um, Schools. So we have some examples in North Carolina. We have some in, 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 in Maryland as well, where bundles of schools, six to eight schools, Virginia as well, where they've done this and they basically said, look, we need six middle schools within this geographic area. This is the basic design and they're prefabbed and they come in and you can't tell. I mean, they look fantastic, right? Um, they've got transparent walls so students can learn about like water systems and energy and all this kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, by doing it on a prefab basis, they're saving money. They're saving and they're, they're de-risking the construction, um, the supply chain issues, the workforce shortage issues is really where it was coming. They didn't, couldn't find workers to build these things. So having it done on site, wherever it was being done on site and brought to site, um, construction staging, which is often an issue, kind of went away for this sort of thing. So um, it is. I mean, it's, it's certainly not everybody's school district yet, but um, as, as it gains sort of market accept, acceptance, I think that we're going to see more and more of it. And we're seeing it in office buildings. I mean, you're seeing it at the commercial level for sure. So we'll see, it's just an issue of time before it sort of filters into other sectors. Inspiring People in Places is brought to you by MCFA. MCFA is a CVE-verified, service-disabled, veteran-owned small business. At MCFA, our why is to inspire people in places through project leadership. We provide planning, strategy, program management, and construction management support services to a wide variety of public and private sector clients. So I, I want to go back to a comment that Duke said about the entrepreneurial spirit inside of the contracting or inside of the contracting agencies, and, and I would say any any public sector group, I, I think that the entrepreneurial spirit does need to be, you know, two two sided and and I think it's a two part problem. One is how do we how do we invigorate that entrepreneurial spirit uh, now? Because I think, you know, that culture, that spirit has been lost. And I think it's been lost because there's a disincentive to taking risks. And it's a very legal organization and, you know, uh, we don't want to fight that in the field, send it to the lawyers and the lawyers will figure it out. And meanwhile, everything slows down. So because we have a lot of public sector 
engineering folks uh, listening to this podcast, what what would you say to them? Um, you know, when they've been brought up that like you don't want to get in a legal battle and your hands are kind of tied. You know, how do we how do we incentivize them or or inspire them to be more entrepreneurial and and take ownership of of solving problems and and figuring things out at at the lowest level possible? I was gonna, yeah, it's a hard one, right? So I was like, <laughs> no, you you have an answer, go for it. Uh, so so um, I I think ultimately, BJ, it, it's it comes down to how the contract is written. Um, I, I actually sympathize with those procurement officers. Uh, you know, you can't just sign away a billion dollars in public funds because somebody asked for it. You have to be very careful. You have to follow the letter of the law. I agree. Et cetera. So I would say it's how the contract, how the contracts are drafted um, and how they're thought through. So, so there's, there's a tendency to follow standardization. And this is where maybe the lawyers are looking at this. They're not thinking, they're not forward thinking. They're saying, look, we've done this on that project. So we're going to do this again, but each project's going to have its own risks, its own opportunities as well. So you can have gain share, pain share clauses that are sometimes interesting, right? If I come in under budget, I get a percentage of that. If I go over budget, I'll eat a percentage of that, but those need to be established within the contract up front, And that requires a little bit of, of thought, right? And so I think that as as contracts are let and as um, they're awarded, those sorts of, of clauses and provisions, they should be proposed by the A&E firms or the construction firms on the other side, but they also need to be sort of organically understood within the agency itself. State and local level, we're seeing a lot of that. Uh, we're seeing a lot of creativity. Federal, you guys know, you've got the FAR sitting over you and, and it does sort of limit what you're allowed to do. That said, you get the right contracting officers. They always are willing to see what is within the realm of possible. Um, but I think gain share, pain share um, clauses and those sorts of things are really useful, particularly when you're in a environment where there's uncertainty and interest rates and inflation and other sorts of things. So, um, But they just can't willy-nilly agree to these changes. And I, I feel for them when a contractor basically calls them like, you know, obstructionist because they don't just sign a change order for a gazillion dollars. They uh, shouldn't. And I applaud them for saving taxpayer dollars. There's there's nothing wrong with being a steward of this taxpayer's dollars. There, there is something wrong when you can't have a conversation and everything's in a letter format uh, that's documented because you're more worried about a legal case than you are about solving the problem that's present today in the project. Um, and there's a lots of uh, square brain behaviors that uh, cause tremendous issues. I've seen a project that was 85% complete. All designs had been reviewed up until that point. And then the agency, the federal agency involved came back and said, oh no, you didn't meet the uh, force protection standards. So you got to tear it down and rebuild it to the ATFP standard that we designed. And of course, the ATFP standard that they were demanding was not in the DD-1391 and was not in the contract, but they insisted upon it. Now it's going to go to court. Eventually the contractor will win. But how incentivizes that contractor to take another job with that particular agency? Zero, right? Because I had to wait five years and spend X amount of money to get my payment, right? So it's a uh, that kind of attitude and behavior is uh, something that we have to disincentivize through position description write-ups when we're advertising the positions, where we're filling them with people. You can make uh, inducements to creativity. You can't offer them a financial reward to creativity, which is one of the main problems is we can't adequately incentivize it. So uh, on the positive side, you can, you could say here, make it part of the PDs for the contracting officers, for their supervisors, for the managers of the program, whoever that is in whichever agency we're talking about. 
Um, and then, frankly, I think in an environment like this one with all this money slosh around, if you really want innovation to happen, you're going to have to start firing a couple people, ideally people that you can fire, you know, uh, legally, not you know, necessarily, you know, arbitrarily, you know, the GS system won't <laughs> let you do that, but you got to fire a few people and that will motivate the others. And until that happens, the rest of them are going to play it safer than they will creatively, quite frankly, you know. I also think that there's there's power and precedent, right? Yes. Um, and one of the problems we have is that, particularly at the federal level, but also at state and local, we're siloed. Yeah. <clears throat> so if you're talking with the Army Corps of Engineers, they don't know what they've done over in the Office of Innovative Project Delivery at, at Federal Highways, right? Um, and so, so whereas I, because I work with multiple agencies, I could be like, come on, they just yeah. did that in DOT. Why aren't you guys doing this in the Corps of Engineers? Right. And when you start to show them and you can hand them the language, which shows them that it was okay by the FAR, all of a sudden doors yeah. open, right? And so I think that there is a little bit of exercise that needs to be happening at the federal level about sort of this call cross-pollinization of these lessons. Um, there's a great website at Federal Highways, um, the Office of Innovative Pro Project Delivery, um, that really goes through performance-based contracting, P3, and what's been allowed, what's not been allowed. Um, they have contract examples. They have example of clauses and those sorts of things. And it's, it's a shame that with such good information out there that it's not more widely understood by other agencies, right? And, and the same happens at state and local levels. We have 50 states all with their own rules and regulations. And then we have a bazillion, um, I think that's technically correct, <laughs> a bazillion separate jurisdictions, whether they have home rule right. or they have, you know, other authorities. And so a lot is lost in the translation. And this is, um, an argument that we always say is that we just need better education out there for some of these folks as well. So that they can say, this is not a scary thing. It's been done before. Um, doesn't mean they'll, they'll buy into it right away as I'm sure Duke is now thinking of examples where he's been like, they've done this in other agencies and the contracting officer is like, I don't care, but <laughs> at least it gives you a leg to stand on. Um, but it, it has worked in, in some instances in my experience, and I think it's something that should be uh, probably furthered as, as, as time goes on. We'll make sure we put the uh, Office of Innovative Project Delivery in the show notes. Uh, I, I want to wrap us up. The, the goal of the show is always innovation, education, inspiration. I think we've touched on all of those topics. I've got pages of notes of, of education here. Um, so hopefully our, our viewership or our audience uh, got a lot of value out of this. but. I want to give you both, you know, a minute to to close us out. Your your view of you know, kind of the industry uh, of infrastructure, where we are as a country, and, and any closing uh, motivation to those listening. Jill. Um, yeah, so my view in general, I'm, I'm optimistic about where the infrastructure industry stands, right? Um, we have a once in a generation uh, inflow of money. It's not everything that we need, though. So I think we need to be careful about checking our expectations. Um, inflation, interest rates and other things are eroding the spending power. But there is definitely a lot of activity going into modernizing our infrastructure. We need to focus more on, on updating the technologies. We need to focus more on delivering in a timely and cost-effective manner. Um, and I think that there's still like many, many, many opportunities for even reconfiguring the industry so that we can be better prepared for the use of this money in a, in a timely and cost-effective manner. But I remain optimistic despite everything I just said over the last <laughs> hour. So, uh, so there you go. Duke, over to you. Well, I think we're at, uh, I think, uh, the best time for reform, improvement, 
and investment in infrastructure in our country for a, a hundred years, you know, uh, even more than during the depression and the new deal. Those were acts of desperation in a time when capital was quite limited. Um, and where we were cutting ourselves off from the global economy through Smoot-Hawley and other tariff acts, right? Now we have an environment, a global environment where we, the U.S. is not going to have a shortage of investment capital. In fact, we're going to have more available to us than in the past, because when the world is in tumult, that money comes to the United States to be safe, right? And that's already happening as a result of Ukraine. As a result, we're separating our high-tech economy from the Chinese economy. Not the entire economy, but the high-tech economy is going to be separate for lots of reasons. Um, that's happening now, which is resulting in huge infrastructure investments in the United States already, and will that will continue. And that means that money will be invested here rather than in, in China. And China is going to experience some problems, I think, that result in... Uh, Money that was going to China over the previous generation will come here for their investments, for their returns, for the safety of them, as well as the the, the, the volume of those returns. So we are at a, a perfect time. I also think these two revolutions, synthetic intelligence, synthetic biology, are going to radically change how we do almost everything in our lives, how we live, how we work, how we eat, how we receive care, uh, you name it, in 20 to 25 years, not, you know, Cognitive revolution was 30,000 years from 70,000 BC to 40,000 BC, 10,000 BC, you know, years ago, we started the agricultural revolution and developed all sorts of things as a result. And life was pretty much similar with some improvements until 1870. And then suddenly we exploded. The second, you know, second industrial revolution led to this enormous growth in wealth and capacity and, and well-being around the world. Uh, that still, even if we just go back there, that's 150 years, you know, we're the digital revolution was 50 years. This is going to be 20 years. And our lives will be as different in 20 years as they as they are today from 1972, right? Mm. Uh, even more different, frankly, because we're going to have all sorts of treatments for proteins, uh, you know, that turns our genes on and off so we don't get cancer anymore. You know, things like that that are happening are possible today as a result of tech that exists today. GPT-3 can write my college essays for me and I'll pass. I won't maybe get straight A's, but I could pass a college. So now professors need not just turn it in or other software to detect plagiarism. They need software to detect whether an AI has written the damn thing, right? You know, and they're going to get it. That'll come. There's an uh, LLD 200. NLLD 200 translates almost instantaneous over 200 languages today. So you and, a, you and I can have a conversation on this podcast, even if you were Lithuanian. Lithuanian, by the way, has 16 cases. No one can speak it except the native speaker. You know, no one can learn how to speak it. it is, it's too complicated. So even if we were, you were speaking in Lithuanian, I could have this podcast with you today. This, this machine will be able to do all 40,000 languages that we know have ever existed probably in a year, right? So this change is occurring very rapidly, and it's going to disrupt everything to include how we deliver and in what we deliver in, in the form of infrastructure. And the fact that we have a financing bolus right now, uh, I don't, I don't think that's, uh, I don't detect just yet that that's something that's going to end. Even if this administration should end in 2024, I don't, I think there was universal agreement on the problems. They're starting to be addressed, right? Uh, I suspect that the political environment will require a continuation of these efforts as well, just in terms of the politics of the U.S. As far, and I'm not a political analyst, so it's as far in the future as I can see. 
which is probably two weeks. But uh, <laughs> uh, I think I think we're at the best time since the middle 20th century to set ourselves up to dominate the 21st and 22nd century as an economic power, social, cultural, political, diplomatic, and, you know, of course, military power, because our economy underlies, you know, all that, that power. And so I'm extraordinarily optimistic in spite of all the complications and the challenges that Jill and I have spoken to you about today. Well, thank you both. And and to our industry listeners, if, if the problems didn't exist, we wouldn't have jobs. So it's, it really is our jobs to, to, to take what, you know, both Duke and Jill are talking about. They're both big thinkers, but they're also doers involved in the industry actively uh, working through these problems at the highest levels of government and private sector. So whether you're private sector, public sector, junior or senior in the industry, uh, please share this because I think if, if we can get the conversation out there, speak openly about the, the problems that we all have to navigate together, uh, we will only do a better job of, of stewarding these public investments for the generations to come. So uh, Duke and Jill, thank you so much for your time and for sharing. It was a pleasure having you back on. Uh, and if you haven't listened to the podcast earlier, go back to the early podcast where Jill and uh, Duke are, are individually interviewed. Uh, but until next time, thanks so much for listening and uh, get back to building. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this show, do us a favor and subscribe to Inspiring People and Places on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast hosting platform. We'd also greatly appreciate if you left us a review and shared this with other entrepreneurial public servants and all your friends and family in the AEC space. Be sure to visit our website, www.mcfaglobal.com. Sign up for our newsletter to stay in touch with us and learn about all of the projects and clients we're helping. Last but not least, we are hiring. We are always hiring. Do us a favor. Take a look at what jobs we have open. Contact us through our website or connect with me on LinkedIn. Until next time, have a great rest of your week and a great weekend.